0: Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Co. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at T-Mobile.com slash now.
1: well michael placed it very succinctly in my lap by texting me one day and he said stop farting around messing life is short we should be together and you're perfect what are you gonna do with that I said, well, you could take it slow. And he said, yeah, we could take it slow, but I'm going to marry the fuck out of you one day, which is the way to talk to me about marriage because the idea of marriage is abhorrent to me. Um, I come from divorce. I I had a divorce myself. It wasn't particularly interesting to me. And for some reason, his words, he is a writer. His words hit me and I, I bit.
2: That's Susan Messing. She's a comedian and an improviser who performs all over Chicago. Nine years ago, she married another comedian, Michael McCarthy, a beloved member of Chicago's Second City and a former writer for Saturday Night Live. Tragically, in 2020, Michael passed away from a rare form of cancer. Michael had left Susan with 50 or so boxes of his writings and journals. And as part of her grieving process, Susan was intent on honoring his memory and his life as a writer. So she started to sift through the boxes he had left behind for her. I did start discovering this guy who was not
1: for me not not for the world for the world he was exactly who he was but for my personal relationship I was getting this sinking feeling of oh this
2: the same the guy I thought he was on today's episode a story of what happens when you open pandora's box I'm Dr. Maya Shankar. I'm a cognitive scientist who studies how and why we change. On this show, you'll hear from people who've navigated extraordinary change in their lives. And my hope is that you'll leave each episode thinking differently about change in your own life. This is A Slight Change of Plans, a show about who we are and who we become in the face of a big change. So Susan, you and Michael had known each other for 25 years before getting together. And I'm wondering what led you to finally date?
1: I had seen Michael in 2006 or seven. He was teaching at Chicago. He had taken a job as a radio host on a morning show, a comedy show. And I had asked my friend, Kate, I said, what's up with Michael McCarthy? And she said, oh, he's going through a divorce. And I'm like, oh, I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole. But because I wouldn't, because after a divorce, that's when people are bitter and shitty and you don't want to be a part of that, at least in any, you know, solid sense. But um I always used to flirt with him and I had always thought Michael was out of my league. He was way too smart and kind and funny and and way too attractive for me. Um, He's a hot silver fox. I was smitten. Mm. When he decided to put his attentions toward me, I was like, I'd be an idiot not to be with this human.
2: Mm. I'm curious to know what happens when two comedy writers get together and get married. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall at your wedding. What what was that like? Were were people in stitches over your vows? Michael's
1: vows to me were just insane. He's the writer in the family. I'm an improviser. I'm, I'm a talk vomit. And then you have to kind of discover what was for breakfast. Michael would write and rewrite and then flip it around and then say if this joke was easier. You know, I mean, he was very tactical about that. And so, I mean, we pretended to do a flip who went first. But honestly, I, I had to open because Michael was the headliner. Absolutely.
2: Do you remember any specific vows that he shared? Yeah,
1: he, oh boy, his, beautiful. Um, first of all, he promised me his undying fidelity, not fidelity when it was convenient, not French fidelity, uh, which, big laugh. He he promised that he would do anything to take care of me, whether he had to be a Walmart greeter or work in development in NBC, which was, you know, big for the writers. They, they all got a chuckle out of that. He said, whoever fucks with you, fucks with me. Oh, he's Mm. just so glib and charming, so Mm. charming. And I couldn't believe I was marrying such a charming man. So,
2: And what did you promise him?
1: I promised to love his special needs cat as if it were my own. Uh, I promised that I would love him unequivocally because I described him as a true gentle man and said some nice words in that way. But my promise to him was to love him unequivocally. That was it simple.
2: Can you take me back to the day in 2018 when Michael received a cancer diagnosis?
1: <sighs> he had been having trouble beforehand. His left arm felt like it was encased in ice, in ice water. And um, they discovered a tumor, a glioblastoma in his spinal cord. They see glioblastomas in brains every one to three weeks. They see this maybe every one to three years. It's just a it's just a bad tumor in a really bad place.
2: And how did that express itself? Well,
1: he had to spend a month in the rehab unit to simply really learn how to walk again. After they went into his neck simply to get a biopsy, within minutes of him coming home, I had had lifts going from the downstairs to the upstairs to our bedroom and Mm. to the basement where his office was and to downstairs. Like All of a sudden we were creating ways to navigate this. And I kept thinking, what is going to make Michael feel like a real boy? That was so important to me because I could see this was a guy who used to bound upstairs and now he could barely walk. And we did it quietly we We tried not to make it a big deal. You don't want to be in a sick home when someone's sick. I really was constantly conscious of what would make him feel as normal as possible.
2: Mm. What was his survival rate?
1: Mm, I think you buy time. I don't think you I don't mm. think you. They, they said, you might live 10 years. You might live da-da-da. But, but I don't, I think they said that to be nice. <laughs> I
2: don't think and, that and was. And you feel, you knew that kind of right away that they were, saying that to be nice or he worked so hard in physical therapy to get better. He, you could see him
1: going from a wheelchair to a walker to a cane. He even had a triumphant walk down Lincoln Avenue where 50 people came and waved Michael signs and blue whistles. And what I said to Michael is we bought time. What do you want to do with it? And he kept saying that all the time we've bought time. And um Again, I did not want to deal with the fact that Michael was handling his mortality. While I was preemptively grieving in my car every day, I would go to pick up my daughter at school and I would just weep. And that's when I called my therapist. I said, mm, guess what? A lot's happened since I've last spoken to you about you know, seven years ago. I met a hot silver fox. He has a tumor in his spinal cord. And now I'm grieving in the car. Go. So that's kind of the way I... Took it. I, I realized that my strength at this point was admitting where I was super weak and where I was mm. weak was I wanted to be super present for my husband right now. And I felt that I was planning his memorial in my brain and that was just not okay for me.
2: So in addition to physically caring for him, one way in which you expressed your care was to shelter him from your own grief. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we tried to keep it light. We tried to keep it super, super light.
2: What impacted his diagnosis have on your relationship? I mean, in what ways did your dynamics as a couple shift?
1: Whew. Well, when you're the nurse, it changes, doesn't it? It changes mm-hmm. a lot where you're going to have to be responsible for urine samples and medicine and all sorts of stuff. And and I tried to keep it more wifely. I I pretended it was wifely, but I knew our I, I knew it just shifted into nurse mode, full nurse mm-hmm. mode. And I would ask for support from people. And that that was, I, I can't begin to tell you how many people helped us. Everyone loved Michael. Everyone loved Michael. He was a good human being. That was probably what, what's that book when bad things happen to great people? That was Michael. And Michael started writing these beautiful essays, um, On Facebook, he called them beloveds, where they were kind of Garrison Keillor folksy musings on life and cancer and all that. And he actually helped a lot of people during that time where he himself was struggling. and, And I just tried to remain in the background.
2: Did you expect him to be so open and vulnerable and public about his cancer diagnosis?
1: First of all, I don't think there'd be any way to hide it he was profoundly disabled. And this is a guy who had gotten a black belt in Taekwondo at age 53. So this was a really active, vibrant human being who was all of a sudden hunched over like an old man with, you know, a puffy steroid face. And Michael always said he was put on this planet to help a few people and learn a few things. So, I think he used this as an opportunity to kind of address his mortality in a way that was less scary for other people and ultimately for himself.
2: Mm. Yeah. Was there a very definitive moment where you realized, my husband is about to die? Had you been holding on to some hope before then?
1: As I'm watching him every day, even though he's animated and his mind was completely all there... I noticed him getting weaker and weaker. There was one point where he was standing up, um, in between the bars and he walked with help with like two or three people. And I thought we're going backwards. In the meantime, a doctor and a social worker walked into Michael's room and said, we invite you to consider strongly hospice. And Michael let out a sound that I'll never forget. Um, because it sounded like he thought, oh shit, this is the end of the line. And, um, and I said, no, honey, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. We, we don't have to go into hospice. We can stay in palliative because it was the word hospice that all of a sudden it resonated with him. Hmm. And, um, so I went in the car and I called up Dr. Fran, a friend of ours. And I said, Michael still wants to fight. Fran insisted that there was a possibility at another hospital But as we're getting ready to get him out of the hospital, he said to me, well, when we go to the hospital, can I go on a gurney? And I turned to him and I said, Michael, I don't think we can do that, sweetheart. I think you have to be strong enough. This is a pandemic and people aren't going to treat you until you're stronger. So I used the word stronger, but I knew he was going backwards. And um, so we got him home. And after that, I knew this was the road down. And he died two and a half weeks after he came home. He was completely, this sounds so weird, but thank goodness he was completely paralyzed when he died because he did feel no pain.
2: Hmm. You mentioned that Michael was fully paralyzed at his passing, um, but his brain was very much still alive. Yes. What were those final moments like?
1: Well, I would say the last conversation that anybody would consider, oh, that's sweet or profound or whatever, is I said to Michael, how will I know, how will I know, that you're with me. And he said, you'll feel me around you. And then I said, why did you choose me? And he said, you are awesome. You are awesome beyond words. And I thought, God damn it, you sweet writer. Right till Mm -hmm. the end. Good job. (laughs) That's a punch gut.
2: Wow. (laughs) Wow. Um, How do you process that moment?
1: I think I had worked very, very hard on my grieving beforehand. But for me, um, I was simply sad. Mm -hmm. I was simply sad. And I don't think I've ever lived in sadness like that before. Mm
2: -hmm. You said earlier that Michael had left you with 50 boxes of his writings. And I can't imagine how raw and vulnerable you must have felt in the days and weeks following his death. So did it take you some time to muster up the strength to open up that first box? I mean, what was that process like?
1: No, I kind of started it pretty quickly because I guess Michael was so organized and I really wanted to honor his possessions. I didn't mm. want to just throw him in dumpster and say to hell with it. Now, if Michael had said to me, Susan, I got 50 plus years of journals and all this crap, just just get rid of it. Mm-hmm. I would have. But he was a word hoarder. He was a writer and he needed to see, even when he was sick and he was working on a, a, a four books. Every time he even made changes, he would print them up and fan them in a beautiful, pleasing OCD way on his coffee table. And so I thought, this guy takes this stuff seriously. Even though I don't, that doesn't mean I can't be incredibly respectful. So I kind of started it with an idea of, oh, I'll just go through the boxes. And then I started reading his journals. And as I'm reading his words, which he entrusted me with, Mm -hmm. um, I'm starting to feel sad. Because it seems to me that he struggled more than I thought. Um, Issues with sex and with debt kept coming back again and again, Um, and I don't, you know, it it seemed that he struggled with with addiction, and um, he was an alcoholic who was twenty plus years sober, but it seemed that porn and debt are right next door to that, and he struggled Mm. with that, and I never knew of that. So as I'm reading it, I'm kind of thinking to myself what the hell? Like, this is very new to me. Mm. And not only that, he had told me that um, two important relationships he had, they had cheated on him. And I thought, well, I'll never cheat on you. And you also promised your undying fidelity, not Mm -hmm. fidelity when it's convenient, not French fidelity. So I thought to myself, oh, well, I'll never cheat on you. So this is not an issue. But what I discovered was Michael was constantly scrambling. He'd break up with somebody after he started dating someone else so i guess the kids call it cheating i did start discovering this guy who was not for me not not for the world for the world he was exactly who he was but for my personal relationship i was getting this sinking feeling of oh this the same the guy i thought he was. But then again, if Michael had said, Don't read my words, Susan, throw them out. There, you know, I would have absolutely followed his directive. Mm. But because my friend Paula said to me, Well, Susan, I think he wants you to know, I thought to myself, No, well, no matter how confusing this is, or maybe even hurtful, mm-hmm. I am going to have to plod through this in waiters and I'll slog through the mud because Paula thought that that he would want me to know mm. him totally, because otherwise she thought he would have cleaned up his side of the street, right? And so one day when I was going through the boxes, I found an old list of passcodes. And I looked at them and there was one number, 3470. And I thought, well, that's not the Jewish New Year. That's a couple decades ago. That's not his mom's birthday. It just was sitting there. It didn't say phone password. And I'm thinking to myself, the one password I have not gotten from my husband is his phone password. It was not on, his, on the spreadsheet, which somebody had filled out for me of all of his passwords because I knew I needed ultimately to deal with Sears warranty and Anderson pest control or whatever the case may be. The bills that he paid online, I wanted to make sure that was taken care of. So I just put it in the phone and it opened up. And when it opened up, I was so grateful because I thought to myself, Michael has friends who are not of my generation that might not have known about his death and all the accolades and the obits. And they hadn't seen that. So there were people that I thought to myself, I can tell them now that he's dead and feel good about that. So I opened it up and the top, (laughs) the top um, thread was with a woman named Meredith and, um, it started March 31st and he died on April 8th. And he said, how's everything? I have profound neuropathy and it's and it's making it hard to type, I love you. And then she said, baby, 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 I love you so much. Prayer hands, prayer hands, hearts, hearts, hearts. And then, then she said, baby, could you send me $50 for childcare? Uh, I hate to ask, baby, 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 hearts, hearts, hearts. And I thought, child care. And I'm like, does he have another child I don't know about? Like, what's going on here? And then I keep scrolling down. And she says, baby, thank you so much. Baby, what would I do without you? Baby, babies, babies. And I'm, and I'm staring at this. And this horrible sinking feeling comes over me as I'm doing this. This is slow motion. And I stood alone in this basement about 10 feet away and said, oh, no. Because as the days went on, she asked for more and more money. And I'm, I'm the keeper of the flame. And I'm thinking, well, that's the day he stopped eating. And that's the day that pills went into liquids. And that's the day he died. You're still asking for money on the day that he died. And so I wrote her on Michael's phone, which I can only imagine how jarring that is. And I just wrote to her. I said, who are you? My husband is dead. <laughs>
2: We'll be back in a moment with a slight change of plans. Sometimes trusting your gut doesn't work. Like when you end up late because you think the line at the coffee shop doesn't look too long. Probiotics can't help with most of your gut decisions. But if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement I love called Symbiotic Plus, It includes clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. All kinds of things can mess with your gut on a daily basis, like stress, travel, and food choices. I take Symbiotic Plus from Ritual every morning to help my gut microbiome. The delayed release is designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract. And I appreciate that it's in just one minty capsule, no refrigeration needed. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get twenty percent off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash slight. Start ritual or add symbiotic plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash slight for twenty percent off. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Did you know that an estimated 5 billion plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away each year? And if that's not bad enough, most of these cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy to ship and leads to excessive carbon emissions. Blueland is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials. The idea is simple. They offer refillable cleaning products with a beautiful, cohesive design that looks great on your counter. Blueland is trusted in over 1 million homes, including mine. I love that I can just fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blueland tablets, and start cleaning. Blueland is a staple in my home because I find their products super clean and effective. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, all Blueland products are made with clean ingredients you can feel good about. Blueland has a special offer for listeners. Right now, get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com. You won't want to miss this blueland.com slash slight for 15% off that's blueland.com slash slight to get 15% off susan had discovered that her husband michael was not the person she thought he was and that he'd been communicating with another woman through his final days a woman named meredith susan desperately needed answers so she texted her i
1: said who are you my husband died of cancer And then I went to his computer, it's the first time I've ever done that, plugged in his password, and he had pretty much scrubbed his computer, but he found a couple of choice moments from 2017, which means he was doing this before he was sick. And one of them was super porny, and the other was from Michael, where he's like, guess I'm going to have to erase some of our videos, ha, ha, ha and am I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking this is not happening. The worst okay. case scenario is happening it's happening and it's it's happening to me. I just nursed him to his death, and he's and now I'm grieving in an international pandemic, and it's happening to me and now this woman isn't biting. She's not gonna say anything because now I went into his Chase account and found that she had sent him a significant, he had sent her a significant amount of money from 2017 to 2020 when he died. And I'd pretty much quit my life to care for him. I had been teaching for IO, The Annoyance, The Second City, University of Chicago, School at Steppenwolf, DePaul University, and around the world. And, um, and performing as well in different theaters every single week. And I just said, I'm done. And it, and it was easy to say I'm done because when the shit hits the fan, it's very easy to say this is your priority. Very easy. So when Meredith would not bite because how, why would she? Um, Cause I was scaring the shit out of her from a dead man's cell phone. Uh, I said, look, I'm so sorry if I scared you, I bring you peace. I simply need to know answers because I don't have um, answers and I can't ask him anymore. So I was wondering if you would speak to me. And she bit, she bit and I appreciate it. I appreciate it. She was very brave. So I spoke to her and she's Mm -hmm. a single mother in Hawaii and no, he is not um, the father of her daughter. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, what did he say about us? First of all, she apologized up and down and sideways. She pretty much fessed up to being a petty grifter because I had mm-hmm. also by then found porn threads of theirs that, you know, I, I was like, these for being such a good writer, you're a shitty porn writer, Michael. God bless. But she became very human to me very quickly, mm-hmm. very human to me. And um, she said that he told her <laughs> that I was bisexual in an open marriage and I was like shit I'd be getting laid right now if that were true you know <laughs> right <laughs> like and no it's not my thing and by the end she sort of tried to meet to it by saying that michael promised to get her a writing agent and um and then he said no let's write a porn novel together because we'll make a lot of money and help our families and mm-hmm. and I again I just tried my best to keep up with her I, I recorded it like a bad podcast it was over 3 hours i felt like good cop bad cop because i kind of tried to tell her you know ask her the same question in seven different ways and i guess she felt that the truth would set her free mm. and so i appreciated it and after um after we spoke i texted her that she was really brave cuz she was cuz it's hard to admit when um you make choices that that you know somewhere in your recesses aren't okay too mm. They're just not okay because she was using him and he was using her. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, I think you guys canceled each other out. You know?
2: Why do you think Michael didn't work to hide all of this from you before he passed away? He could have just asked you, throw out these boxes, throw out the passwords,
1: you know? I think sometimes maybe, you know, I don't know because I haven't died before, but I don't think men think they're going to die sometimes.
2: Mm, I see.
1: I don't Yeah, think I guess so. also
2: asking you to throw those away, maybe psychologically was him surrendering to his death, right?
1: Yeah, that's a good way to put it good semantic adjustment mm. <laughs> good analogy well, no, i'm
2: just i'm just postulating here <laughs> it's wow, a good postulating
1: I take <laughs> it look i'm coming to you for as much clarity and healing as 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 this story is is bizarre and salacious and i was compelled to read because i needed to know his truth i mm-hmm. needed to know his truth and so i put the most vulnerable the most I don't even know what the adjective is at this point, but the, the hardest stuff went into one box and I called that the box of doom. And uh it was just in my cold storage near his ashes. And a friend said to me, you don't want this anymore. You don't want this anymore. So I borrowed my neighbor's sola stove. I hope you get like a, some sort of endorsement from this. Her sola stove. And I burned them all. And I actually, one of the few things I actually put on social media was I said, burn no what no longer serves you. You already need to know what you know. It was an indication to my friends who did know the story that I was not going to keep the weight of his physical words anymore. Because again, if I wasn't going to use them against him and I already knew everything I needed to know, there was no reason to keep them anymore. Yeah. At one point when I was snarky and shitty, um, I actually had to give his ashes to his niece for safekeeping for a while, because I was afraid that I would dump them in an alley and promptly forget which alley it was, or I would put them in an overhead compartment in a plane with no identifying information to fly away. And I was like, no, you're an asshole, Susan. You can't do that. So I kept, so I did take them back. And then I gently brought him over to Montrose Harbor on Lake Michigan um, early in the morning. And that same day that I burned his stuff, I also gently released him into the lake. I'd forgotten that I had the right as the keeper of that to respectfully um, release him.
2: I mean, I think what you've described is textbook definition of what it means to have complicated grief. And in trying to put myself in your shoes, I'm thinking, you know, death of any kind presents so many unexpected changes for a person, right? Yes, We have to ask ourselves all sorts of questions like, how are we going to live without this person? How will we feel day to day? How will we change in their absence? Right. Will, will we become different people? Right. Our lives have morphed together and it's hard to imagine layering on top of all of that, this change, this revelation.
1: Yeah. I'm not just grieving my husband during the age of COVID. I'm grieving the guy I thought he was. So it's a, it's two headed. And I remember touching his ashes one day saying, I just want to remember. I'm trying to remember that I love you. And Michael and I used to talk right after he died. Then he kind of disappeared for a while. And he said very clearly, you do remember. That's why you're sad. Because there was so much joy Hmm. and so much heartache. And the only people who really saw me lose it and kind of keep spiraling were my best friends. And they were, they were magnificent in reminding me um, to reframe a lot of this and to not blame myself. That was the thing that they worried the most about, was that I would blame myself for it.
2: Yeah. Um, a common refrain we hear when there's betrayal of some kind is, did I even know who this person was? And the truth is, I imagine, um, you probably did know a lot about who Michael was, right? I imagine there were many moments of genuine honesty that you shared. Um, But I wonder, like, are are you able to appreciate or are you able to see that complexity, that potential complexity against the backdrop of such a large deceit?
1: Yes, because the minute you understand the duality in people and why they are the way they are, I mean, is is that right? Is it possible to have that duality and Mm. both are true? Because I am not black and white in my thinking, and I've mm. always gone toward the gray. And even, um, even in figuring him out, I have a, we have a um, banner over our front door that says, do hard things. And I was like, well, this isn't going to be easy, but I'm going to do hard things. Mm. And so I go toward the danger and I go toward what's difficult to understand and try to make sense out of it. And, and again, I did not want to vilify or demean my husband, even at my worst with my best friends and going, he was an asshole. You know what I mean? Because he wasn't. He, he was a guy who did feel profound struggles in his heart and in his brain and in his actions. It, it showed up again and again in his writing.
2: Yeah. You know, your story makes me reflect on how much each of us values knowing the truth in life. Would you have preferred to just remain ignorant of all this like if you could go back, no. would you not have opened the boxes tell me tell me more about that
1: part of my honoring him was honoring his directive, but in order to honor his things, I had to make sure that I looked at his things
2: yeah, but susan i mean you're you're, you're talking about still wanting to honor to honor him and honor his boxes he In my view, he's not deserving of that honor right now. And so I want to know from your perspective, from Susan's psychological perspective, was it better for you to have known that this was the case? People fall on different parts of the spectrum in terms of seeking truth versus protecting their own sanity and psychological well-being. So I'm just wondering where you fall on this spectrum.
1: I was betrayed in my first marriage and I was told I was a crazy pregnant woman and I was told I was postpartum. I'm like, I don't feel like a crazy pregnant woman. I don't feel postpartum. And then in this marriage, again, the same thing happened. And the common denominator is me. So for me, when they say the truth will set you free, in my case, it's only going to help me traverse a future path of honesty And listen to my red flags because I was right. I'd love to have been crazy, but I wasn't. I was right both times. And I was the common denominator.
2: Mm. You're you're saying when you raise concerns with Michael, he would say, oh, you're just being crazy, Susan. He, He would be as dismissive in that way. So you were led to believe you were the problem. Absolutely. And now I'm starting to understand
1: why certain behaviors in our marriage made no sense to me sex was really hard for me to talk about and said, what happened to our sex life? And this is a man who courted me with sex and coach bags. I don't know why the coach bags, by the way, I have plenty. If you'd like some, you can really only use one purse at one time. Um, but that I had said, what happened to our sex life? But again, I wanted to be Super gentle with Michael because this is a man of a certain age. He, you know, I thought to myself, testosterone changes. Um, men are visual creatures. I'll go back to boot camp. But and I wish I could have given you a soundbite. But because he couldn't give me one, I just kind of thought, oh well. And then he got sick in 2018, and I thought, you're an asshole, Susan. He was sick the whole time. Mm. You're just an asshole. I always put it on myself. I always wanted to make sure that he never felt less than. I had to always be very gentle with him because his father was so critical of him growing up that I felt I don't want to add to his plate. I'm his wife. I I, I want to be one of the good guys, not one of the bad guys. So at the very least, um, I wasn't crazy. And at the most, I got to understand a man... In death that I didn't get the opportunity to understand in life. Mm. And yes, I could have been pithy and just stopped farting around, messing, life is short, we should be together and you're perfect. And it could have been at the end, you're awesome, you're awesome beyond words. But that's a story he wrote. And that isn't the truth. And I do appreciate the truth, no matter Mm. how difficult it is to hear or to discover.
2: How have you changed through this process?
1: I tend to remember that people who on the surface um, might seem rude or inconsiderate or whatever, that they are going through something that I don't know about. And um, I've usually pretty much given people the benefit of the doubt, but now I really give people the benefit of the doubt. Mm. I really do. Um, I Which also, is interesting
2: because you could e- equally imagine someone, It's actually, a choice, more likely it? to imagine someone who no longer gives people the benefit of the doubt because you had given Michael the benefit of the doubt and then you were betrayed.
1: I was reminded though, I was doing a Zoom call to China and I knocked over by mistake all these office supplies in a box. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm gonna start off my day like this, God damn it. And then I looked and there's this little piece of paper and it was in with Michael's office supplies, which he had a myriad of. And it says, husband, I love you. And it was a note from me, which I had left him all over wow. the damn house. And I thought I had burned all of them in the fire. I thought there's nothing left to discover. And what I discovered was husband, I love you. So, you know, dummy, it all ends up with love. And mm. and maybe I grieve and maybe I'm angry because I loved him. And yes, I kept my side of the street clean as best I could through our marriage. Mm. And I would have liked to know of a set of rules that, um, that involved me that I was not apparently privy to. So that can hurt. But, um, now the way I love is, and maybe he taught me this because he didn't have the ability to love freely and honestly. Now I love freely and honestly. So he gave me a real gift. His betrayal gave me a really big gift. And this is my discovery in this moment that it was a gift Sorry, I'm just going to get a tissue. (laughs) No, of
2: course. Wow, that's so beautiful. Wow. Um, Tell me, can you just tell me about your new love?
1: Um, I've loved my friend Bob Fisher for 30 years. He's been a great friend and um, something changed. And now he looks at me the way I feel about him. And um, it's a super honest and candid love. And um, sometimes I have to be super careful when I answer a question only because it's never been asked of me before, you know. I've never been asked those kind of questions.
2: What no kinds of is, questions?
1: Everything from um, well, I mean, one of the first things I said to him was, "Once we started dating, was what's your greatest shame?" You know what I mean? Like, because I was like, he was like what's "What are going your passwords?" <laughs> yeah. Oh, he point blank said, "This is my debt. This is what's on my desk. Feel free to look through all of it." Here's the people. I mean, he couldn't have been more honest with me and because our friendship has he's he's felt he has felt very responsible for the choices that he's made in his life good and bad he's felt Mm. very responsible for them and that to me honesty and truth is sexy
2: yeah
1: it's super sexy so i'm there now
2: oh i love that so much oh it fills my heart with warmth um final question why did you decide to share this story with me now?
1: I am sharing this now because I feel like it will support my healing and perhaps support others. Secrets are toxic Mm. and they eat at you. Mm. And there is always someone who will listen. And when you bring darkness into the light, it is no longer dark and you have red flags. Chase that because your gut is right. So, and and I'm also your poster child because also I'm healing on the other side and I can be your poster child of hope because if I can love again after going through a real shit storm, I think anybody can. So when you say people become bitter after their divorces, I say, no, they become smarter. And I'm not saying that you're not going to go through a bitter path. All these feelings are temporary, and I have to have learned something that I can pass on to make somebody else's path a little easier. Here's my question. Is it so unique to find out after someone's dead of their betrayal? It really isn't. Although it would have been nice to find out during the time he was sick that it had happened, because my friend Emily said you could just call up Meredith and go, Girl, come get your boyfriend. He is sick. You know what I mean? Like, we, again, my friends are awesome.
2: Hey, thanks for tuning in. I wanted to let you know that next week, we're going to be mixing things up a bit. Recently, I had to confront an unexpected change of my own. It's a deeply personal story, one I never planned to share so publicly. But then I realized that's kind of what this show is all about. So I asked my producer to turn on the mic and interview me. My heart sank. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. How is this happening again? Like, on exactly the same day as last time. Like, it just, it didn't make any sense. Tune in next week to hear about When Life threw Me, my own slight change of plans. A Slight Change of Plans is created, written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shankar. The best part of creating this show is getting to collaborate with my formidable Slight Change family. This includes Tyler Green, our senior producer, Jen Guerra, our senior editor, Ben Tolliday, our sound engineer, Emily Rostek, our associate producer, and Mia LaBelle, our executive producer. Luis Guerra wrote our delightful theme song and Ginger Smith helped arrange the vocals. A Slight Change of Plans is a production of Pushkin Industries, so big thanks to everyone there. Thanks also to Laurie Santos, Michael Lewis, Ramsey Kabaz, and Scott Menke, who have been wonderful friends and incredible supporters of this show. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker. And please remember to subscribe, share, and rate the show to help get the word out. See you next week.